I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So um, we have a great lineup for you today. We're going to kick it off with a somewhat lighthearted story with a dark underbelly. Uh, the DC media celebrate their corruption at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, then we're going to kick it over to Ben. He's going to talk about a related topic, um, the fact that any candidate that doesn't have the backing of the censorship regime has an, an uphill battle in addition to opponents, of course, partisan opponents. Um, and then we're going to move to Josh, and he's going to update us on the left's war to delegitimize the, uh, the Supreme Court now that it's controlled by conservatives by taking out hit job pieces on each of the justices in turn, it seems like. Um, and then I'm going to talk about a, a relatively undercovered even in conservative media story that there were some big changes to the Title IX regulations suggested by the Biden administration, as well as a lawsuit brought against the uh, complaint brought against the uh, the state of Tennessee um, for for actually banning uh, surgical mutilation of minors in service of a transgender ideology. So um, we've got a, a long lineup for you today. And I'm with that, I'm going to kick it over to Emily first to talk about the White House Correspondents Dinner. Sure. Well, I'm coming to you here from uh, Washington, D.C., where the media spent the last week bathing in the glow of celebrity guests here to the nation's capital um, because they just can't help themselves. I wanted to talk about this year's White House Correspondents Center, which took place obviously last Saturday, um, because it's the first since 2019. And a lot of folks might remember why that is. Obviously, COVID played a role uh, in the last couple of years. But before that, it was just this idea that the the hostile relationship between Donald Trump and the press, um, you know, you can go and read the reflections the press wrote very dramatically at the time, uh, kind of uh, sort of saying we have for years, you know, taken the wrong course and Trump has finally put an end to this tradition. Now, in years past, everyone also remembers there were some journalists think of like Tom Brokaw. Who, who would say, Brokaw, who would say, you know, it, it's just not right for us to have all of the champagne flowing as we dine with the president and his staff at a, a fancy hotel here in Washington, D.C. It's not the right look. We're supposed to be adversarial and we're supposed to be giving voice to the average American's concerns um, about the presidential administration. Now, that all came to a head again during the Trump administration when the dinner, nobody could really see how it would happen um, with the Trump administration. It had happened that one year when uh, a terrible lady comedian um, said something weird about Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, but it, as the, the dinner sort of goes away, this is an article, this is a segment from NPR. Journalists reconsider purpose of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Amazing, amazing. And CNN made a statement, uh, so six years ago, about, quote, its commitment to the health and longevity of a free press as it decided to get rid of the usual, like, celebrity invitees at its table. It took journalism students instead. Amazing. And CNN this year then, like, actually ran a promotional advertisement for the coverage it was going to do on Saturday um, and called the dinner, quote, the unforgettable star-studded event. 
Now, we have one editorial position at The Federalist, which is that the White House Correspondents' Dinner is bad. This is the only editorial position that we have ever staked out to avoid being like uh, different conservative media publications who think their editorial opinion is um, constantly worthwhile on a, a daily basis, whatever, that's a debate for another time. But this is our one stance, and it's a good stance, because if you've ever been here in Washington for the White House Correspondents' Dinner festivities, you know that it is a week-long affair with parties that make D.C. try so hard. These nerdy journalists who were never cool in high school are trying desperately to get to these parties where they have different kind of shticks. They have um, really fancy appetizers and hors d'oeuvres, and you get a chance to take a picture with a guy from Breaking Bad. It's amazing. Like it's, it's really like goes to say everyone who the Hollywood like wishes that it were DC and DC wishes that it were Hollywood. Um, I think that's probably true more of DC wishing it were Hollywood as evidenced by this, but it's just the the absolute like epitome of everything wrong with media culture here in DC. And this year, all of that was underscored by the fact that they did this 180 degree pivot from these self-reflections during the Trump years and acted like they never happened. It's amazing how many journalists went without a single like hesitation, got their pictures taken with the cast of Vanderpump Rules, wish I could have done that too. Uh, but they did it again without any hesitation, without any memory or reflection on the words that they said just several years before. So with that, I could go on forever. Um, it is just an orgy of elitism that, that epitomizes everything wrong with the, the kind of ruling class here in Washington, DC, not just the media, uh, but I'll kick it open to the group for your thoughts on uh, what we witnessed this weekend. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here. I mean, this is one of the things I actually applaud Trump for, um, that he actually, for some time, killed off the White House Correspondence Center for to the benefit of the country. No, it, obviously, it has all of the, the gross elements that Emily said, and, you know, sort of uh, parading influence and, in, in the Capitol and parading the fact that there is no adversarial relationship between those who actually wield power and the media that's allegedly supposed to cover what they do with it. Um I would say that it it points like whether or not this kind of uh, whatever cringingly called nerd prom, right? Um, whether or not that it it matters as much as it did pre-Trump, I think depends on um, this tipping point that I think is also very obvious in the whole Tucker Carlson departure from Fox News story. Um, I don't know if we have reached that tipping point. But I know that it's still an open question in a way that it wasn't, let's say, four or five years ago, that finally this this grip of legacy media might actually be cracking, right? That that they have lost so much trust in the mainstream, not just from conservatives or those who frequent the pages of, you know, uh, National Review or, or uh, Josh's Josh's stable of, of conservative writers over at Newsweek, right? Um, but actually like mainstream, apolitical, you know, uh, normie human beings in, in this country um, that I think it's an open question whether this this sort of gross display um, is is viewed the same way with admiration as it was let's say in 20 you know 2015 or 2016 right versus today after after the pandemic after you know the the myriad of very important stories that the media has openly gotten wrong uh, and and really refused to go back and correct themselves on. I really do think it's an open question now in a way that even like two years ago, it wasn't. Obviously, I hope we have reached that tipping point where finally independent media or alternative media actually does have a shot at that normie viewer, that person who isn't paying attention to politics 24-7 and is not already on the right the way that we all are. 
Um, I think it's an open question, but but that's that's already a step forward. It's already a positive, you know, development that it's even a question these days because I think often we underestimate and still maybe continuing to underestimate the the power of of the quote unquote mainstream. So I'm a rabid consumer of news, as I assume all four of us are, and you know, between Twitter and cable news and uh, social media, blah 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 blah, blah. and uh, every year, year in and year out, bar none. I'm not sure that there is any quote unquote political event that the people in like political playbook and all of like the daily newsletters get so up in arms about. They're reporting all the gossip and the rest of America presumptively could give zero you know what than the White House Correspondents Dinner, which I have never been to. I literally have negative interest in ever attending and I have watched a collective total of maybe like two to three minutes of in my entire time working in media. I mean, there is really no like more self-absorbed event in in all of Beltway. There's really no more event that I think personifies the disconnect between the American ruling class, this profoundly incestuous relationship between the political ruling regime, the administrative state and the Democratic Party, frankly, just itself, as well as the the uh, the third estate or, or you know uh, or the media that should be covering uh, but really just is not covering is just increasingly there to serve one purpose one purpose only which is to to block and tackle and to offer apologia and just do whatever the Democrats need them to do and there was really you know I mentioned I've only watched a few minutes in total of this sordid event over my entire professional career but I did I must confess that. You know, roughly 15 to 20 seconds of that two to three minute total was actually this event. And the one thing that I saw when I was doing a media hit the other day, the interviewer played it for me. And it was Biden making this joke about, I guess, how he he was like, you know, like my time up there is actually very reminiscent of, of, of my day to day routine of the White House. I'm up here for 10 minutes and then I just leave without taking any questions. And, you know, what he's actually doing there. What he's actually doing is he's making fun of the journalists in the room. He is deeply, deeply poking you. But, you know, the raucous laughter after that, people would just kind of lapped it up like a cat drinking some spilled milk off the kitchen counter. I mean, it, it, it was really just an, an absurd affair. Um, you know, it, it's, the, it's the kind of thing, frankly, that, you know, it makes you think that, um, uh, uh, that like some like 19th century British satirist, you know, might have like wrote like a whole book about just the entire absurdity of it all. It really is just overly rich, I think, for almost all Americans who are viewing this. Yeah, so obviously I, I share the scorn and contempt of uh, my fellow co-panelists here. Uh, the one thing I will say, though, to the credit of the White House Correspondents Dinner is that Sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so the fact that they are so brazen and over the top in this orgy of ruling class elitism and the cozy, collusive relationship between the media and the powerful who they're supposed to cover, but instead they serve as mouthpieces for, I think it's a good thing that it is on display and that it is so brazen and in your face because it gives the public whatever percentage of the public is actually watching it or seeing clips of it, great insight into what this class is like, what it is all about, and essentially how alienated it is from the country that it's actually supposed to be covering. And again, the leaders of the country that it's supposed to be scrutinizing on behalf of the public. So you know, I think displays such as these, as disgusting as they are, uh, do have some utility Namely, in the fact that, again, sunlight's the best disinfectant and this 
transparency is great. And I will say, just as a microcosm of you know, how self-important the media is and how up in arms it is whenever it's questioned, and this is a tangent, but I've been following a little bit the development of community notes in Twitter. And you know, Mehdi Hassan has been in this back and forth with uh, critics of his when he's talking about crime statistics by race. And he continues to get fact-checked via the community notes function. And this is, it's it's a hilarious balancing function when you have genuine fact checkers who are actually fact checking rather than fact checkers who are actually just, again, media mouthpieces who are trying to tamp down dissent. And this is sort of a democratizing feature within Twitter. And I hope it continues to blow up and enrage those in the media precisely because with a little bit of fact checking and hard work, you can actually destroy many of the core narratives to the agenda that they're trying to impose on us. And with that, I'll kick it back over to Ben to kind of continue on on a, a similar topic about uh, the censorship gauntlet that has to be run through uh, from something that RFK Jr. said. And I think he brought up an important point in one of his interviews. Yeah. So uh, first, you know, full disclosure, while I broadly kind of agree with RFK's Jun RFK Jr.'s critiques of kind of our ruling class organs and how corrupted and collusive they are, uh, there are any number of issues in which I'm in staunch disagreement with him. But nevertheless, it's interesting having his perspective on the Democrat side of the upcoming election to the extent it's presented at all. And that question is raised basically because, first of all, as we noted, I think last week, the Democrats are not planning on having any primary debates, which will uh, withhold from the public perspectives such as RFK Jr.'s. But also, ABC News recently did an interview with RFK Jr., and he spoke at length during that interview about vaccines generally and the COVID-19 vaccines specifically. And ABC News, in their editorial judgment, and they were open and upfront about this, decided to edit out that part, truncate the interview, and not let RFK Jr. put forth his arguments, which obviously resonate with probably millions of Americans. And he's written a best-selling book, or at least a book that sold thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of copies that I think reflect that about Anthony Fauci and kind of the collusive relationship between big pharma and government and the administrative state. Uh, but beyond that, the ABC News anchor essentially went into uh, sort of a canned line, basically defending the vaccines. And you know, as I wrote in this article, this column on Newsweek this week, uh, on this issue, she essentially sounded like Anthony Fauci, or Anthony Fauci could have drafted those remarks. And what this little uh, anecdote illustrated to me was, or ticked off in my mind, was you know, this is going to be part of a very soft illustration of the censorship regime that is going to exist, not necessarily formally or in terms of policy, but informally in the way of any dissident views actually getting anything resembling a hearing going into the 2024 election. And I go back to this line. Uh, many viewers are like and listeners are likely familiar with that infamous 2020 Molly Ball timepiece on kind of the conspiracy to protect the 2020 election. And I continue in my writing and thinking to go back to this quote. She described kind of the this affront to Donald Trump in that case as a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election, they were fortifying it. And I think one thing that has not gotten enough focus going into 2024 is that we obviously talk about 
the merits and demerits of candidates, and they're going to put forth their positions and their style and substance is going to determine how much people weigh one candidate versus another. Obviously, we lamented last episode issues around the integrity of our election processes and what has fundamentally and perhaps irrevocably changed since 2020. But another aspect that I don't think has gotten enough focus is the idea that there's been a censorship apparatus put in place. It has not been dismantled, despite the fact that we've had some oversight on it in Congress and we've had researchers and journalists investigate it and start to connect the dots for the public. And one must assume that, un especially under a Biden administration, an apparatus that already persisted prior to him is only going to be more pervasive and surreptitious going into 2024. And so, again, there's soft illustrations of this in terms of, you know, essentially state media parroting the state in what how it presents interviews and not providing uh, a venue for dissident voices. But beyond that, of course, there's the censorship apparatus that we've talked about, mass public private censorship regime that outside of Twitter being at least in part taken out of its hands still persists and probably will rely on AI now instead of human beings to actually go about identifying content that is purportedly dangerous to the health or public safety uh, in, of Americans and use that as a pretext to censor. So I think this should be, first of all, the censorship regime itself ought to be an issue going into 2024. As I've argued before, not a single tax dollar should be spent to directly or by proxy use state power to censor Americans, particularly on political speech, which has been deemed by courts to be the core of First Amendment protected speech. And viewpoint discrimination uh, is against the law. But leaving that aside for a moment, more broadly, this regime still persists. And so how will any candidate who holds any view you know, I, I think, as Inez rightly noted, that isn't the regime-backed view. How are they going to be heard going into 2024? I think it's a, a legitimate open question. It, it's not a mere rhetorical one, and it's something that candidates have to be thinking very seriously about. How are you going to circumvent potentially an even more pervasive uh, information operation, in effect, widespread one, that is going to be imposed, I believe, going into 2024? And we already kind of see the makings of. Uh, and, you know, it's worth noting... Uh, recently, AOC had some remarks about Tucker Carlson. I'll quote her directly. She said, we have very real issues with what is permissible on air. She said, I believe that when it comes to broadcast television like Fox News, these are subject to federal law, federal regulation in terms of what's allowed on air and what isn't. When you look at what Tucker and some of these other folks on Fox do or did, it's very, very clearly incitement of violence, very clearly incitement of violence. That's a direct quote from her. And she's calling for government action. And I think that is probably the next stage of this apparatus. But the government has been doing it not under cover of law prior to this point. And I see it only getting more pervasive and insidious going forward. So, you know, with that, I'd be interested to know what you all think about how this regime might be circumvented or if it is going to be the huge stumbling block that I see it to be going into 24. Yeah, I, I mean, like, look, it, it clearly is. And Ben, you know, you laid it out quite nicely in your latest column for nice for Newsweek, excuse me, as you often, if not always do. But look, I mean, between this information cabal, this censorship regime, between the technology companies, between, I, I, I mean, really, one way to view this is just but the latest manifestation of the metastasis of the woke ideology, right? I mean, it's really just kind of the spread of this pernicious kind of uniparty regime rule that is now kind of dictating editorial decisions at ABC News and, and things of that nature there. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't think that we on the right to this day have kind of a concerted playbook to to confront that. But where it starts to get really dicey from kind of a crass political kind of electoral college perspective, is when you when you take what you just laid out with the information complex and what you were kind of just alluding to at the end of your presentation with with all the you know the the electoral system itself and 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 the voting rules in a lot of these states that's when it starts to get really dicey so when you take kind of this regime control of the distribution of information and you know totalitarians going back hundreds if not thousands of years or you know at least hundreds of years I probably have i think intuited or and understood that controlling the flow and, and, and distribution of information um, you know, is about as as important and seminal as it gets if you are trying to impose uniparty and regime rule. So, I mean, you're you're definitely seeing inklings of this. I mean, that that obviously is what happened in 2020 with the New York Post and the Twitter files and all of that as well. But yeah, I mean, we on the right just have no playbook for combating this as well as kind of what is going on in the states right now. It's a very black pill thing to say, but unfortunately, I think it happens to be true. And there are some good people in some think tanks. You know, Hans von Spakovsky is but one that comes to mind. Hans is amazing when it comes to kind of voter fraud and pushing back against kind of the, you know, perpetual kind of early voting, mass mail-in balloting regime. But state by state, I'm not sure that we have the answers there. And then, you know, in Wisconsin, where there was this recent Supreme Court election that flipped that all-important swing state to the to to the liberals, um, it's hard, you know, it's it's hard not to be at least a little depressed, but I think you laid it out quite nicely there. Um, it's worth mentioning actually here too, um, something I didn't see much else of uh, last fall, but TikTok started an election center um, last fall and just last week, another huge, huge story um, that got very little media coverage. They announced that they would be doing more censorship on climate change. So again, this is a, a company that is owned uh, by a country that stands to benefit from American energy dependence. Um, that now says it is censoring the way that on the biggest speech platform, the, the biggest digital speech platform in the country, the way that we can talk about these issues. Um, and by the way, on the election point specifically, that means they can route traffic um, theoretically. We don't know that this has happened, but we do know that because people in Beijing who are members of the Chinese Communist Party have access to the TikTok algorithm, we know that they could, during election season, pull someone's data, say they were Arizona uh, between two candidates and, uh, you know, not a likely or, or likely and they are a likely voter, um, start feeding them all kinds of information in one direction or say somebody is a, a likely voter from one candidate could start feeding them disinformation, you know, TikToks that say along the lines of what Robert Mackey got thrown in prison for, uh, you know, do this to vote um, and putting them in, a, in the wrong direction on that point. So I, I feel like we have just sacrificed so so much like the frogs in the boiling pot um that it's just hard to see the light on this one and to disentangle ourselves from all of this yeah just a couple brief points before we we move on i mean obviously this isn't new this the our knowledge of this sort of public private interference in in into what americans are able to discuss with each other as part of the political process i mean booting the sitting president from a major social media platform is itself right um arguably election interference right so um you know being unable to share important stories uh on any social media 
outlet, uh, for example, the New York Post story uh, about Hunter's laptop, right? That That is, you know, that's obviously we suspected a lot of things about how this worked behind the scenes after the Twitter files, you know, uh, dropped. Now we we have the actual evidence. We have the smoking gun that, in fact, this is how it works. And obviously, it's not only happening with Twitter. Uh, we just have this one black swan event of Elon Musk publishing all of this stuff. But we know it's not only happening on Twitter. We kind of have this a sense, uh, a more concrete sense of what that that public private regime looks like. Um, but we don't really have, as as Josh said, you know, we we really haven't uh, sort of progressed to being able to to say. Um, what we ought to do about it. I, just one off the wall idea. There is this tradition under the First Amendment um, of, of the right to listen as well as the right to speak, right? Um, the right to receive information as well as the right to give information um, runs through can cases like Stanley versus, uh, against Georgia. Further back, some cases about, um, you know, uh, what are they called? The the guys who go around knocking on people's doors, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Um <laughs> So, but there there is this tradition here, and perhaps it needs to be updated in the same way that some of our understanding of what's public and what's private needs to be updated in an era when those two things, where you know the government and especially unaccountable agencies uh, intermingle with private companies uh, in terms of of executing uh, their censorship edicts, um, perhaps that that uh, branch of of um, First Amendment law needs to be dusted off and and looked at. Um, and with that, I'm going to kick it back over to Josh uh, to talk about the attack on the Supreme Court, which seems more and more obvious every day that this is this is an organized and sort of systemic attempt to delegitimize the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is. So that's a perfect transition. So we'll just kind of lay out some of the data points that I think lead us to that conclusion. So we had a previous segment on this show about the the slew of articles from ProPublica that are purporting to call into question the integrity of Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been a conservative icon for over three decades now. That is going back to his initial 1991 uh, confirmation hearing from then-President George H.W. Bush and his mistreatment that was so horrific that led him to refer to it as a high-tech lynching. Well, we've covered that on a previous segment, so I'm not going to go into details there. It pertains to alleged improprieties pertaining to his relationship with Harlan Crow, who is a Dallas, Texas-based billionaire donor. Um, suffice it to say that there is no there there for further commentary on that. You can go back to both our previous episode on that subject and for James Taranto of the Wall Street Journal's numerous kind of debunkings. Uh, he's done an, actually a, a wonderful job um, debunking the alleged improprieties uh, pushed by ProPublica. More recently, you have seen uh, Politico, uh, I, I believe it was Politico, that, that have uh, alleged that Justice Neil Gorsuch has had some improper real estate transactions out in Colorado, where his family has has a long pedigree. Apparently, uh, he uh, he was alleged to sell a property to a lawyer or a firm who had some business before the court. It turns out that he had just a, just an interest, a, a a minority interest in an LLC or some other kind of business form, and there was nothing whatsoever illegal or improper about what he did. That too has been debunked. You've also seen. Some recent articles calling into question uh, the wife of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' wife, who is a high-profile legal recruiter. Um, those of us who have worked um, for law firms know how pesky these legal recruiters can be. They are oftentimes sending lots and lots and lots of emails there. Um, she, by she, just to clarify, is herself a lawyer by background there. She has all sorts of knowledge about the industry there. 
Um, there's nothing inherently wrong whatsoever with with being a, a prolific legal recruiter. Um, I mean, this is a very viable career. People can very extremely legitimately make a lot of money for, for placing lawyers in different firms and encouraging lateral transfers um, and, and things of that nature there. But that, too, has been used as some sort of um, alleged impropriety accusation against Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, and then yeah, we also saw a cover story um, from the New York Times over the weekend, this very, very long, turgid article just basically saying how George Mason University's Anthony Scalia School of Law has become this purported kind of right-wing bastion where all the conservative judges are asked to, to talk and do all these nefarious deeds and indoctrinate the kids. Um, you know, look, George Mason has had a right of center law school for um, as long as I've been following legal education. I mean, back when I was at University of Chicago, which unfortunately is not kind of the right of center bastion today that it was maybe back during the Reagan presidency, but still has kind of a vestigial kind of strong right of center student presence. I think in many ways we kind of viewed George Mason, even when I was in law school, as one of kind of our only kind of uh, intellectually pure institutions, as at least as it pertains at least to kind of conservatism and things of that nature there. But it's it's worth pointing out actually that I have actually made fun of George Mason Law School in recent years, um, not so much for that, but because of the fact that because of kind of the influence of the Mercatus Center there and kind of the libertarian streak that runs across that faculty lounge in general, um, I think a lot of the folks on that faculty do not necessarily evince the kind of national conservatism, common good originalism that I increasingly espouse. So actually at NACON 3 in Miami, I literally had a joke in my speech about the George Mason University faculty lounge. Okay, neither here nor there. What is going on here? What is going on here? It's very clear. It's exactly what Inez said it is. This is, they're building up to a systemic disinformation, deleg delegitimate delegitimization campaign against the only conservative branch of government right now, which of course is the U.S. Supreme Court. That is not a particularly, you know, ultra right wing branch of government, by the way. That to this day there are still only two day in and day out reliable conservatives on that court. Those would be Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. The others still sometimes will waffle depending on the case or the issue or the controversy. But clearly, what they are trying to do is strip the court of any public legitimacy that is ultimately what the court depends upon and then who knows who knows what would happen if biden wins re-election i mean will they will they pack the court will they do something like that it really remains to be determined so i want to just very quickly i know we're running on time here i want to give you guys time i'm going to quickly quickly read what the senate democrats under fdr said as they rejected his court packing scheme because it's an amazing quote back this is back in 1937 this is a democrat controlled senate judiciary committee 1937 quote let us of the 75th Congress, in words that will never be disregarded by any succeeding Congress, declare that we would rather have an independent court, a fearless court, a court that will dare to announce its honest opinions in what it believes to be the defense of the liberties of the people, than a court that, out of fear or sense of obligation to the appointing power or factional passion, approves any measure we may enact. We are not the judges of the judges. We are not above the Constitution. So I'll just end it on that note, but that really is kind of the showdown that I think that we're building up towards. I have no idea how you summarized all of that, Josh. It has been a flurry over the past couple of weeks of just like ridiculous attacks. And let it be noted that when Josh mentioned the attack from Heidi Prisbilla of NBC News on Justice Gorsuch, she got absolutely, or she's NBC or Politico, she got absolutely embarrassed um, by getting basic, basic facts and understandings of the disclosure process wrong. So obviously she was being fed information um, and was not good enough at her job, nor were her editors to catch it. Uh, just like an incredible failure. And it's interesting because 
I support um, like really stringent disclosure laws um, for everyone, but it is very interesting. The selective fixation on the conservative justices of the court. It's so, the narrative here is so completely false and it is based on a false premise that this is only happening with the conservative justices and that the conservative justices have in some ways been swayed, been swayed by these relationships uh, financially over the course of years, that these are conflicts of interest that have had a very real impact on the Supreme Court. They clearly have not. And that's why the entire, nobody has been able to surface one piece of evidence that suggests anybody has been swayed by any of the alleged conflicts of interest that have been surfaced over the last couple of weeks. There's not one piece of evidence of that. And yet there's this entire obsession, the hearing today with Dick Durbin doing his usual Dick Durbin, uh, Charlie Day at the, the chalkboard meme thing. It's just like in, unbelievable how it just, like baseless these accusations. I think of all of them, there was one thing that I was like, eh, okay, maybe Clarence Thomas should have disclosed the the flight, uh, the Harlan Clough flights. But other than that, there's just nothing. And the broader point is completely baseless that someone has been swayed. So I'll kick it over to everyone else. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be brief. There are obviously any number of sinister reasons we could surmise behind the attacks on the court, obviously, as one of the only institutions that Democrats and the left don't control 100% of the time. Um, and obviously, as such, they need to bring it down and uh, seek to delegitimize it so that it becomes another, just clearly another political branch that they can ultimately usurp all power of. I will say also, probably part of this is very worst case scenario from the perspective of the leftists engaging in the hatchet jobs here. They're probably going to make running against the Supreme Court part of the case in 2024, I would think, just think spitballing out loud here. Uh, beyond that, you know, in terms of the actual merits of the arguments put forth, I would point everyone to Mark Paoletta. He's been doing yeoman's work exposing the double standards, the hypocrisy, and then the dubiousness of these arguments, again, under a show me the man, I'll show you the crime uh, sort of paradigm in which the left is operating here. And, and the left point just worth noting is, obviously, at the end of the day, to the extent the left can't ultimately pack the court or otherwise undermine it in ways that literally change its structure and basic functioning or get Supreme Court justices to recuse from all manner of cases that they should not recuse from on the merits. The only other thing I'd say is, and, and this point ought to be hammered home, I think, this is about, and this goes back to the Dobbs leak, and of course even goes back to high-tech lynching number one against Clarence Thomas. At the end of the day, the left wants to make it so that any conservative or close to conservative justice operates with fear and under intimidation. And this is about imposing mob rule over anything resembling an independent judiciary and being able to swing one or two potentially wobbly, weak votes on issues of vital importance to the left. And at the end of the day, I think that is what the campaign is really about. It's about making sure if they can find someone to attack and to chill into going along with the left on a few pivotal in a few pivotal rulings that at the end of the day will be viewed as a success of this nefarious again information operation and information warfare really yeah so i, I think this is connected to as, as soon as the federalist society's role 
um, which is the same as many organizations on the left in the legal world, uh, also became presumptively illegitimate. I think it's about trying to apply this presumption of illegitimacy um, to each of these justices in turn to dig up whatever they can on them. So far, I think it's actually pretty funny that what they've come up with is that, you know, Thomas, one guy has a rich friend and the other one has a successful li- uh, wife. Okay, so that's that's what they've come up with so far. Um, but I, I think Ben is totally right that this is this is meant to intimidate. And more than that, it's meant to plant the idea in your average news consumer's mind that this is a corrupt institution. Now, um, you know, the American Constitution Society, which is the Federal Society's counterpoint, that's pres- counterpoint, uh, counterpart rather, geez, um, that's presumptively legitimate, right? Um, the, more to the point, the Warren Court run from the 1950s all the way up until, you know, a couple of years ago, right? Uh, that's all presumptively legitimate. But the second that conservatives go through the process, actually organize um, in, in whatever problems like anyone might have with the Federalist Society in terms of this doctrine or that one, it was a good example of conservatives actually organizing to, to thwart institutional power over time. And the second that that gambit succeeded, um, and I would argue we have something like a, at best, like a five and a half <laughs> uh, majority, right, um, on the Supreme Court, that's the moment that that the left decided this institution is presumptively illegitimate and has gone about, you know, floating ideas about, uh, you know, circulating the idea that packing the court would would be a, a legitimate political move, right, um, and, and attacking each one of these justices in turn. I don't think they're going to get very far in attacking these justices, so I'm kind of worried as to what they're going to come up with after they find out that I don't think this... Thomas, I don't think is is intimidatable in this way. Roberts might be, but he's he's such a squeaky clean guy that um, this is the best that they could come up with. The fact that his wife was also a lawyer and made good money at her job. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think this particular gambit is going to succeed, but I think it's all coming together over the past few years. The second that the balance on that court flipped is the second that all of these institutions on the left, these captured institutions, are going to start treating the court as presumptively illegitimate. Um, and we should expect that going forward. Maybe this will finally kill off the collegiality uh, in, in the law. Maybe that's something that needs to happen, especially as it's obviously only observed by one side, as evidenced by the fact that in that Alito interview in the Wall Street Journal, uh, he suggests uh, you know, pretty pretty clearly that it's a real possibility that one of the justices, presumably Sotomayor, leaked the Dobbs opinion in an attempt to change the outcome, right? So um, that that interview is worth noting as well. But uh, yeah, it, we, we can expect the presumption of legitimacy to flip every time conservatives get in charge. And honestly, we should be prepared for that and not be um, cowed by these kinds of, of sort of appeals to legitimacy that are only respected by one side. Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and transfer into my own section, uh, toss the ball to myself, if, if uh, as Emily would say. Um, but I want to I want to note something about uh, further regulations that have been issued on Title IX. So if you go all the way back to June of last year, before the midterm elections, um, they the Biden administration released uh, regulations on Title IX. Those regulations were deeply unpopular, um, among other things. And it's it's even hard to list all the important elements that that these regulations changed. The most important element, the one that got the most news coverage, is of course they redefined sex to include gender identity, which which completely perverts the the purpose of Title IX, which I disagree with to begin with. But let's leave that aside for now. Um, by redefining 
sex under the law to include basically anyone who says or self-identifies as as one or the other sex uh, is legally that sex under the law. Um, that that's, that was the change that got the most um, press coverage. I do want to note two further changes. They made changes to um, the due process protections available to men in college, primarily men in college, uh, which are very, very important as well and trample on their constitutional liberties. Uh, and they also circumscribed, went back to circumscribing um, or broadly interpreting harassment uh, to include protected speech, right? So you can harass someone not just by, you know, uh, the, the obvious things that we'd all recognize as, as sexual harassment, but also just by speaking political truths that somebody doesn't like. So th there were massive and important changes in those regulations that have yet to be finalized. But one thing that they left off in June, I think because it was such a potent issue for the Republican Party, um, is dealing with women's sports. Um is is dealing with the fact uh, whether or not um, men can compete in in women's sports, right? With with regard to educational institutions that receive dollars from the federal government, which is basically all of them, um, all public schools, uh, as as well as um, almost every university. Hillsdale might be the only exception. Bob Jones University. There's a couple exceptions, but the, overwhelmingly, this is the sector that runs all, from kindergarten all the way up through university and law schools and so on. Um, so they finally dropped the other shoe uh, a few weeks ago. Of course, they waited until after the midterms to do it. Um, and they've actually taken some some blowback from the left, which I think is is unwarranted. Uh, basically, this rec this regulation would make it presumptively against federal law uh, for a state to actually recognize the same position that only members of one biological sex may compete. Uh, in a sport. Um, so for example, only biological women can swim against biological women. We don't want a Leah Thomas kind of situation. So um, th these regulations would make those kinds of blanket, quote unquote, blanket bans, that's what they would call it, presumptively uh, uh, illegal under federal law, under civil rights law. Um, but they leave some wiggle room. They say, well, basically they introduce a kind of balancing test and they say, well, we, the department, we will, uh, under, we will determine whether you have appropriately weighed the harms to transgender athletes versus the rights of um, of women to actually compete along uh, fairly alongside other women. So it's kind of a, a, a sneaky little thing that will result in in the same thing, which is preventing states from actually making laws uh, that that exclude biological men from from women's sports. Um, if these laws become finalized, these regulations, which they haven't yet. I also want to point to one additional lawsuit that I think really tips the hand of where the Biden administration uh, is is going to to fall on this. Um, they have the Department of Justice has lodged a complaint um, against a Tennessee law that bans transition for minors, right? So it bans uh, surgical mutilation as well as uh, the, the prescription of, of uh, cross-sex hormones and, and puberty blockers uh, to minors in the state of Tennessee. Now, the Biden administration DOJ has come out and said that that is not only contradictory with civil rights law, uh, via, for, but it's actually um, actually enshrined in the U.S. Constitution under the Equal Protection Clause, that it's actually unconstitutional to prevent uh, children from having access or being prescribed uh, life-altering hormones um, when they are, are under the age of majority uh, in, in the fruitless attempt to transition to the opposite sex. Um, so that is the position of the Biden administration. I think it's been really useful, actually, to, to clarify, because I, oftentimes I think Biden himself comes out uh, and, and tries to avoid speaking 
on, on this topic too vociferously, because I think he knows that it's very unpopular, even among his own voters and among Democrats, let alone independents and Republicans. Um, but they really have chosen a side on this one. So uh, I'll toss it out to you guys. I, I know that I took a long time describing all of this, but it's something that the, even conservative media did not really cover. Uh, and so I think it's an important change in the law. Yeah, I did a segment on this for Breaking Points a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that stood out to me, because I really, I, I tried to read the entire ruling before doing something on it. One of the things that stood out to me is how sort of amusing it is that the Biden administration insists on the one hand that gender identity is absolutely equal to biological sex, to sex. Um, that's what obviously along the lines of what Bostock uh, ruled, and that is their sort of broader position. Gender identity equals sex. That stemmed from the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letter in 2016, um, and that is their position. Well, if that is your position, it makes absolutely no sense to uh, issue the ruling that his Department of Education just issued right now. Because if that is the case, then you are opening up the door for discrimination. Um, and it is a, a real hard uh, circle to square, or square to circle, however you say that, um, because it just doesn't end up checking out, period. I mean, if you believe that, then, then you should um, completely, fully, truly believe it. And they don't. And this is an obvious tell. Um, so, I, and I also think it, it really could make the situation a lot worse by giving, opening up the door to allow people to petition to actually um, enjoy the rights that they're guaranteed. Because one of the problems with these like dictates from Washington, D.C. is that it puts people in Brooklyn and in Kansas in the exact same type of situation. That's how the trans issues became a political football after that original Dear Colleague letter. Um, and I don't think putting more kids at the center of these legal disputes you know, what constitutes a reasonable objection to this uh, ruling? What does not Kids are going to be at the center of those conversations. And I don't think that's helpful, whether you're in Brooklyn or in Kansas. And I'll defer to my colleagues for the rest of the time. I guess I'll take a slightly, I, I agree, to be clear. I mean, God forbid, I obviously agree with what Inez and Emily have said, but I'm just going to take a slightly different perspective here. Um, and I want to return to one of my favorite kind of uh, beats, which is the Bostock case, um, because to me, what you are seeing here with what the administration is getting ready to do with Title IX, kind of this renewed push when it comes to the ERA, which Inez has both written about and spoken about in this podcast at great length, you are just seeing this concerted push to, to make sex and gender identity, obviously, two very distinct things and all of that. And uh, to me, it kind of just underscores the utter folly of the Bostock case, which if you go back and read it, the actual opinion from Justice Gorsuch in June of 2020 purported to be only narrowly about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, but obviously that's not how it works. You have to really kind of look at a judicial opinion through an extraordinarily kind of microscopic, um, you know, four corners of the page, very narrow view to not appreciate the fact that a, a, a purportedly conservative judge ruling as he did in Bostock, um, which just to clarify for those who, who have forgotten, interpreted that discrimination because of sex actually means because of sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and so forth there. Um, it, it's tough not to view that as kind of just a, a broader kind of imprimatur of legitimacy for the cultural militants of the left to kind of just feel emboldened to do that, which they are doing here. Um, so that's kind of just the context that I wanted to paint there. 
Um, I want to save time for Ben, but you know, I too lament kind of what the administration is doing here. Um, and yet again, I kind of cry into the wilderness, you know, where are the old school feminists, you know, I mean, there are some to be clear, you know, there's Martina Navratilova, there are some other kind of, there are some kind of other venerable kind of first wave, uh, or second wave feminists, I should say, kind of sports icons, but um, there's really not a ton out there at this moment. Yeah, so I concur in the, in everyone's remarks in this segment. Uh, the one thing I'd add just at a 30,000 foot level is uh, undermining and essentially attacking biological sex as preeminent in this conversation. The efforts, obviously, of many states to try and create a wedge between children and their parents when it comes to these matters. And then, obviously, the myriad policies that we can point to uh, from progressives that have led to uh, breakdown of the family and alienation, again, of, of children from parents. Uh, all of these policies at the end of the day erode the basis of a flourishing civilization and then use the resulting chaos to exploit that chaos and ultimately usurp more and more power. And so all of these issues broadly, when when we look particularly at you know trans and the culture war of the left on trans and trans related issues, at the end of the day, I view it in that context of this is an attempt to ultimately undermine anything resembling an established order, that which we know to be true through science that's revered in every other context, but not when it cuts against the policy wishes of the left. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's about breaking down the pillars of a civilization in order to use the wreckage and the chaos created from it to usurp further power. And with that, I'll kick it out back to everybody for final thoughts. I mean, if no one else will go, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first crack at this um, just to continue something on on the discussion we were just having. Um, I don't I don't interpret Bostock quite the way that uh, Josh has laid it out. I, I actually think it builds on that the text. Um, in short, I think Congress kind of passed a crazy law in 1972. Um, and that's the, the root of this problem. Uh, sex is not like race. Um, the, the law should and must discriminate on the basis of sex in order for us to live in a sane society. The law has to be able to distinguish between male and female and treat them differently in relevant cases um, in order for us to live in a sane society because biological sex differences are real and profound and the law must recognize that. Um, now, I, I don't agree uh, with Bos the Bostock ruling and I, I do think that Josh is, is completely correct to say that uh, this is a four pages, four corners of, of the ruling case. Obviously, there are, you know, there are leftist jurists who are just waiting to take Bostock uh, and, and apply it and to say exa in the exact way that that um, Josh suggested, both beyond Title VII context and um, the, the sex, interpreting sex to actually mean gender identity. Um, I think Bostock relies more on precedent itself insane based on this, 1972 law, right? Uh, that, for example, it is a discrimination on the basis of sex for an employer to require that a female employees wear makeup but not have a similar requirement for male employees. Well, in one of the cases that got rolled up into Bostock, it was, well, if a female employer wears a skirt, that's fine under the dress code. But if a male employee wears a skirt, that's not fine. So Bostock finds that a discrimination on the basis of sex because if that employee were a woman, he'd be able to wear a skirt. But since he is a man and he wants to wear a skirt, it's a discrimination on the basis of sex. 
So it's not quite the same thing. I think it's actually a saner sort of interpretation of an insane piece of legislation. Um, but that, I mean, that's exactly the problem. Now, I, I still think that interpretation is wrong. I think I think the dissent in the in Bostock is correct um, that this is an overly textual and pedantic uh, definition. Nevertheless, it doesn't actually rule. Importantly, that that sex includes gender identity. Um, and and with that, I'll, I'll just say what I was originally going to say in my um, closing thoughts is, is something maybe I'll elaborate on next week or, or the week after that. Um, we we are currently in year two of the greatest. Uh, explosion in school choice opportunities in the states um, that has basically ever happened in in the history of, of uh, this policy, the modern school choice um, advancement of policy, which started about 30 years ago. Uh, we're looking at at um, a whole bunch of new programs uh, and expansions of programs. Four states uh, have already signed new or expanded policies into law, three more states likely to join them. Um, and the quality of those options is also incredibly important, right? So um, until this last two legislative sessions, the idea of universal school choice program that includes everybody in the state that allows middle-class families um, to, to actually have access to the dollars that are being spent on their behalf and on their children's behalf uh, in, in uh, woke public schools, uh, is is uh, actually like that that was far out on the limb so nevada had passed a, a universal program but it got killed by their courts um arizona had had a universal program but only for a few years um now we have a bunch of states joining and the premise is now when we pass a school choice program that it ought to apply to everyone that it ought to uh, include the middle class i think this is a really really important development um and I think it's going to grant enormous leverage in a lot of these battles. It's not a, it's not a silver bullet um, in terms of a lot of these cultural battles over education. It should have been done 10 years ago and we would have been in a lot better position if it had been. Um, but it, it does give parents really important leverage for a lot of these fights because what we've seen time and time again is, is parents fighting um, th this kind of ideology in their schools only to find that if they kill it in one place, it springs up in another, right, under a new set of names, and they have to sort of start over. And that's because every level of the public education system has been ideologically captured for decades. This is not a recent phenomenon. Um, it's just that we've we've all woken up to it, um, or a lot of parents have only woken up to it um, in, in recent years when I think helped along in part by the fact that they actually were able to hear what their children were learning in social studies classes when school was virtual during the pandemic. So um, in any case, I think that is actually a significant cultural win for the right. We don't get many of those who are usually on our heels on all cultural issues, but I think this is a significant cultural win for the right um, that, that is uh, worth noting. All right, so first on the Bostock case, um, I'm not really sure why we're talking about Title IX precedent and what was explicitly and by his own opinion was affirmatively and avowedly a strictly and narrowly Title VII case. So that seems to me to be totally irrelevant, notwithstanding the fact that the Supreme Court obviously has plenary authority to disregard any lower court precedent with which it disagrees. Also, notwithstanding the fact that Neil Gorsuch had previously joined in 2018 and 2019 redistricting cases out of Texas, um, had joined Clarence Thomas in already kind of previewing an extremely kind of doctrinaire, very kind of 
uh, skeptical view, you might say, of stare decisis. So none of that seems to me to be relevant. I do agree that in his literal opinion, the Bostock opinion, Gorsuch purports to draw a, a distinction between biological sex and gender identity. The best way to describe his purported distinction is sophistry. That's what the philosophers would call it. And it is mere sophistry because the practical effect of the Bostock case is obviously to prevent employment discrimination on the basis of transgender identity. And that is why I think everyone who has read that opinion since then has conveyed it as such, Neil's sophistry notwithstanding. Um, I want to make a, a, a similar point, though, when it comes to the court, which I neglected to mention in my segment on this topic. Um, uh, so Sam Alito had a really, really, really powerful interview with the Wall Street Journal, which itself is a huge deal. Um, this is not exactly the kind of thing that Supreme Court justices do on a regular basis, suffice it to say. Um, Laura Ingram, who herself is a former clerk of Clarence Thomas, had the Justice Thomas on, on her show a couple of years ago. That was a big deal at that time. This is not the kind of thing that, that, that judges or justices in particular do. And there were a lot of noteworthy parts of this interview. I, I, I think that, that it, the whole thing is very much worth reading. One highlight, I think, is that there have been some people who have uh, basically, uh, baselessly from my perspective, speculated that the leak in the Dobbs abortion case from last May of 2022 came from a conservative justice's chambers because it was some sort of ham-fisted attempt to lock in the majority. You've seen a lot of liberal law professors kind of spout this theory. Um, Alito uh, emphatically shoots that down, basically says we'd have to be crazy to do that because we quite literally put assassination targets on our back. I mean, who in their right mind would do that? So he defiantly shouts that down, perhaps the most noteworthy part. And again, I would encourage everyone to, to read uh, this whole interview. The most noteworthy part, I think, is where he basically says that he thinks he knows who the leaker is and that he he uh, simply does not have the the relevant evidentiary threshold to publicly reveal it, but by a preponderance of the evidence or whatnot, he he has determined who it was. My read on that is twofold. One, he wouldn't say that or even hint that he thinks he knows who it is unless he's damn well sure who it is. Two, related to that, is that if Alito knows who the leaker is, there is no way that at least the other members of the Dodd majority know who it is, quite possibly the entire court. So uh, to me, that is just a, a, a huge, huge buttressing of what many have previously said, that this appears to be a massive, massive, massive shielding of, of, of the evidence operation going on there. Um, and it's just a, it's just an incredible scandal. And like, I'm not going to let it go. I mean, there are there are relatively few people still talking about it. You know, Michael Chertoff had that, you know, had that had that um, supplement to the Marshall's kind of review back in January. I think it was earlier of this year, basically saying that they would um, you, you know, that, that he agreed with their with the Marshall's conclusion. I mean, but this is this is a national scandal. It is a national outrage. And um, if Sam Alito thinks he knows who who did it, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why he shouldn't do it, um, because he probably would be speaking at least on behalf of 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 his fellow members of the Dobbs majority. Um, the final thing that I will note, um, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday, May 2nd. Um, by the time you listen to this, I will be over in Budapest, Hungary for, for CPAC Hungary. Looking forward to returning to this small yet disproportionately influential and right of center politics, at least country. And I look forward to giving a debrief on the next NACCON squad. Um, <clears throat> I'll pick up on a point, and as mentioned, just because it's something uh, the two of us were talking about a little bit last week about the sort of pipeline from policy to conservative media. And it, it's true that conservative media. Uh, our stable of policy experts is sort of disproportionately 
uh, dominated by Tea Party era economists, you know, the the people who have Bloomberg columns um, and can really do a great job breaking down a tax proposal, can do a great job breaking down, you know, anything that was front and center during the years that conservative media started to blossom uh, in that new way from, you know, 2008 to 2000. 14-ish, something like that. Um, but that pipeline from policy to cultural coverage is definitely a place that, uh, or populist coverage, you know, the the way that one of those folks might break down a, a tax proposal is probably different than where the average Republican voter um, is or would want to see that discussion go. So I think, you know, that's something that personally, I'm, I'm actually talking to people about uh, trying to see what we can do on that front. Um, and we'll be working on a bit, but it's, it's a really fair problem that we didn't have somebody when the Title IX policy came out, really other than Inez, who, who was scraping through it, had a base of cultural policy knowledge um, and a level of expertise that allowed her to analyze it and talk about it a little bit in the in the media. And I do think that's a real problem. And, you know, I'm open to suggestions and ideas. Uh, like I said, I, I have some meetings on it coming up, but uh, it's just something to keep in mind because it's the, the left has somebody, uh, whether they claim to be left or not, on uh, you know, who, who's able to be called up at any given minute on call at, at any given minute when there's a, a new policy drops um, and they'll be in the post and the times and on CNN and CBS uh, because, you know, the, they're just the media is dominated by people who are left of center. So uh, it's something that can be done better. But if you're ever wondering, you know, why some of these things don't get adequate coverage, it's honestly, I think, a, a problem in the pipeline. Um, so just something to think about. On a totally different topic, but speaking of sophistry and illustrative of our time, uh, I think Josh was right to note earlier in my segment this link between uh, the censorship regime and the changes in the election system. And uh, something which I'll be delving into uh, going forward and perhaps talk about here and probably address, address before is the idea that uh, our federal authorities have recast uh, protecting critical infrastructure and election infrastructure as a mandate to then clamp down on any dissenting speech around the election system itself as a potential domestic terror threat to that infrastructure. Uh, so the sophistry should be fairly apparent there. And in context of this censorship regime, I think it's important to note that obviously in 2020, you had a massive widespread change in election rules and regulations in several major instances, not effectuated by state legislatures. And then subsequently, you had the censorship regime, which said that any challenges to any questions about or critical thinking around the legitimacy of that system, the changes that were made, some of the results that we saw in the wake of the 2020 election were then themselves censored. So you change the rules and then you stop anyone from being able to comment to them uh, under the guise of saying that they may be a terror threat and it might be an incitement to domestic violence. This is where our regime is. This is its sophistry and a liberalism on full display and it persists. And this is a regime that we're going to be laboring under and suffering under, I think, for years to come until and unless there was a clear response to it and a dismantling of it. 
Well, looking forward to getting another YouTube disinfo warning on this podcast, which uh, we should see as a badge of honor, I think, and we do see as a badge of honor. So on that on that note, on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Josh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and I'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.